2: From the Third Coast International Audio Festival and PRX, I'm Gwen Maxey, and this is Best of the Best, the 2018 Third Coast Festival broadcast. The Third Coast Festival is an independent arts organization dedicated to great radio, heart, soul, and ears. We gather the best stories from around the world all year long and share them in a variety of ways, via radio and podcast, at live listening events, and honestly, every other way we can think of. We also host the Third Coast Richard H. Treehouse Foundation competition to honor the very best audio documentaries of the year. This year, we received more than 550 entries from 26 countries, including Brazil, Denmark, Chile, Japan, and the Czech Republic. Then we asked our most distinguished colleagues, highly accomplished producers themselves, to gather for the near-impossible job of judging this wonderful work. On this special broadcast, we bring you the winners and behind-the-scenes interviews with the makers of these remarkable stories. We begin this hour with our Best New Artist Award winner. This award recognizes the work of a producer, who, despite being in the field for two years or less, has an original voice and a great sense of story. Someone whom we want to hear more from. Here's an excerpt of Phoebe Wang's delightful, bittersweet audio memoir, God and the Gaze.
0: When I was 12, I had a sexy dream about Jessica Simpson. This came as a surprise for two reasons. One, I was a long-standing fan of Ashley Simpson, the chronically underrated younger sister. And two, I was a Jesus kid. When I was growing up, my parents ran Christian church services out of my dining room. On the wall, there was a sign that read, Christ is the head of this house. So when Jessica came to me in a dream, I was kind of nervous and began evaluating the situation. What just happened? I remembered my mom saying that Hurricane Katrina was caused by America's increased openness to gay marriage and the debauchery of Mardi Gras.
1: Gayness isn't a thing, right?
0: That gayness is a social construct. Sinful people just made it up. And I vowed to never tell anyone about Jessica. For the next few years, I didn't think about gayness except in the context of banning it. When we were in high school, my sister would share New York Times articles on the most recent gay marriage bills. In response, my mom's sister and I would meet in my parents' bedroom and kneel in a circle. We'd pray for God to uphold the sanctity of marriage in America, which of course was a nation founded on Christian principles. The house would be quiet except for distant screams of WWE stars being hit over the head with folding chairs. My dad was a big fan. Dear Lord Jesus, we know that same-sex marriage is not your will. Please give people the wisdom to uphold Prop 8. We ask that you not let evil prevail in this world. In your name we pray.
3: Amen. We usually say amen when we have finished a prayer. And we hear it all the time in church. But what does it mean? Well, when you say amen, you are saying, So be it. And I agree. If you believe the Lord is good, say amen. amen. If you believe the Lord is great, say amen. amen. If you believe the Lord is to be praised,
0: say amen. amen. From zero to eighteen, my life was complicated not just because of church services in my dining room. My family was a total shit show with my dad terrorizing the family and my mom as a passive accomplice. Seven, six, Five, four, three, two, one. College College felt like total freedom. I'd been counting down the years to college since I was in fifth grade. When my parents dropped me off at college, my mom cried when she and my dad said goodbye. When she tried hugging me for one of the first times in my life, I gave her an awkward pat on the back. My sophomore year, I quit going home. Eventually, I cut off my family completely. It's my junior year of college in Philadelphia. Big Al, my roommate, is at my bedroom door. Big Al is not so big. She's little, just like me. I met Big Al at a campus Bible study my freshman year. When I fall asleep studying, Big Al pulls out textbooks from underneath my head, tucks me in, and turns out the light. Sometimes she slides little drawings and Bible verses underneath my door, so I'll find them in the morning. Big Al and other Christians I've met at college have become my new family. Hey. Hey. Big Al sticks her head in my room. She has a worried look on her face. Um, did Molly tell you she's gay? Yeah, she did. What do we do? I give her a sad look. I'm not really sure what to do. It feels like Molly's hurtling down a track to hell with no brakes on the train, and there's nothing Big Al or I or anyone can do to stop her and her gayness. A week later, Molly chops off her hair, I assume, as some sort of gay statement. What a shame, I think. A few months later, I'm Tinder swiping on dudes. Are you a pair of glasses? Uh, what? Because I want you to sit on my face. Out of curiosity and disgust for men, I switched my settings to men and women, which quickly becomes just women. My encounter with Jessica, aversion to boys, how I loved Sophia Bush and Hillary Burton so much on One Tree Hill. The signs were there. Surprise! I'm gay. When I came out, reactions were split. My friend Sam, a tatted chef on my cycling team, Was entirely unfazed. Oh, yeah, I've always known that. You wear Clarks. Those are lesbian boots. Other friends, mostly Christians, were caught by surprise, sort of like they'd been duped into being a gay person's friend. This transition from homophobic to baby gay was pretty confusing. I felt more complete than I'd ever felt before, like I found this missing part of myself. But I also felt ashamed of things I used to believe. We ask that you not let evil prevail in this world. We
3: usually say "Amen."
0: I imagined what people were saying. Um, did Phoebe tell you she's gay? Yeah, she did. What do we do? I don't know. Oh, Phoebe. Or Phoebe, she's going to hell. What a shame.
2: There is so much more to God and the gays, in which Phoebe struggles to figure out what price she has to pay to be herself. It is painful, joyous, funny. And difficult. I asked her how she chose this subject for her first ever audio story.
0: I just had this whole eating away in me, I felt like, these unresolved feelings about my friends. Um, and I think that it, it was coming up on just the moment where I had started processing some of my feelings and had a little bit of distance from from my coming out. Um, and I was asking a lot of these questions. And so it felt really natural to me to kind of jump in head first. And I, I, I just felt like I needed to work something out in myself. And I was like, if I'm going to make a radio piece, I need to make it about something that's eating away at me.
2: The overall sound of your piece is really unique and has so many facets. How did you develop your style as an audio maker?
0: Well, the thing is, I went into radio as an extension of my art practice. I had been a painter before that, and I moved into sculpture and installation because I felt like it was a form of painting in just a different way. And when I went into sound, it also felt like an even different kind of painting. I mean, I was working for the heart, and I think that working around people who treated sound like an art form and played around with sound designed a lot really influenced me heavily. Like, like the way the, the heart sounds is very immersive, um, and sound tells a story just as much as the words do. Absolutely. I think that form of storytelling really resonated with me because I didn't feel like I was a journalist. Um, I I felt like I was an artist and I was trying to tell a story that was complicated and that um, couldn't only be told in words.
2: Phoebe Wang, winner of the 2018 Third Coast Best New Artist Award. When she gave her acceptance speech at our ceremony in Chicago recently, Phoebe used the stage to deliver a powerful message, and the audience was positively rapt.
0: I hear people say all the time that uh, we tried our best to find a person of color for our job opening. And we couldn't find one because not enough people of color applied or because they weren't qualified enough for the position. And I think that is total bullshit. Because what I hear when people say we tried our best, what I really hear is we chose to spend our time and our money on something that we decided was more important than hiring a person of color. And what I also hear is we're okay with alienating a massive group of listeners, and we're okay with having massive blind spots when we share stories about people of color. So if I could offer some suggestions. Don't wait for people to come to you. Go on the internet, recruit people, invite them to apply for your position, invite them to join your applicant pool. And don't just find a person of color that you're going to plug into your organization and expect them to act like a white person. And fit into the office structures that white people have built. Be ready to take on the hard and unglamorous job of actually training and investing in someone and find opportunities for them to advance in positions of power. And it's not enough to have one show about people of color and think that you've done your social duty, yeah. and in fact to exploit them for some sort of social currency, and then proceed to hire a zillion white dude hosts and white actors and white producers. And for the people who said that they couldn't find people of color to fill their job positions, Lakidra Chavez, Arissa Afantaku, Jenny Casas, Aliyah Pabani, Jody Powell, James T., Morgan Yasmin Kia Gibbons, Vanya Ingres, Imani Mixel, Kelly, Jordan Bailey, yeah. Jade, Kathy. Cherry Griffin, Elalie Abdul, Akita Pascal, Anna Martin, Cher Vincent, Sarhan, TK Matunda, Sharon Mashif, Barry Williams, Daisy Rosal, Megan Tan, Timothy Lulai, Ben Jitsu, Alex Lou, Tobin Lowe, Hannah Kingsley, Ma, Tracy Hunt, Angela Nien Ariana Martinez, TK Dutes, Oluwakemi Kemi, Ariana Beatty, Thomas Lu, Abigail Berry, Derek Toledo, Lizzie Quintanilla, Sayara, Julia Nigel Turner.
2: Phoebe Wang, winner of the 2018 Third Coast Best New Artist Award. This winner of the 2018 Third Coast Best Documentary Honorable Mention Award has broken new ground on all fronts. Produced from inside San Quentin State Prison, the podcast Ear Hustle has illuminated the life of incarcerated people in a way no one has before with humanity, humor, gravity, and grace.
4: I'm Erlon Woods. I'm incarcerated at San Quentin State Prison in California.
2: I'm Nigel Poor. I'm a visual
3: artist and I volunteer at San Quentin.
4: And together we're going to take you inside.
2: In this episode, Nigel and Erlon step back from the host mics and hand them over to L.A., a former sex trafficker, and Sarah, a woman who was trafficked, though not by L.A. A note, this is a difficult conversation to listen to. At the same time, it's a brave step toward restorative justice. Can I ask you some questions? Sure.
5: You say you were raped at 13. Were you in the life at at that time?
6: Yeah, my indoctrination started at the age of 11.
5: Let me ask you this. When you went home and you told him that you was raped, what was his response? I didn't. Why?
6: I ended up kicking in five windows at my school, and I ended up at the hospital. And then from there, I tried to kill myself. I didn't speak, I, I didn't even know how to cry. Because he took that away from me, too.
5: When you mean? Were you ever in a situation where you were raped and you had to go back and tell him? I was raped every
6: time he told me to go
5: out there. That's really unfortunate.
6: That's what happens to kids.
5: I agree with you, it's,
6: 100%. Yeah, exactly. But a lot of times... We don't know that we can say that.
5: Look, from that perspective and this perspective, that's like we cover a lot of ground because you know that side of it and I know this side, right? And it's like I asked you that for a specific reason because young boys are taught that when they're in that game, it's like there is no such thing as rape. There is no such thing. But that's, I'm glad you made it abundantly clear that every time a child gets in a car that that child is raped.
6: And the trafficker allows that, but yet the trafficker wants to condition the child to think that they're the ones that's going to protect them, but they're the ones that do the most harm. You can't protect anybody when you're the one that's making them go out there and to be violated.
5: I'm 100% in agreement with you. I was a grown-ass man, and I chose to do the things I did, and I stand by that. It's like I don't look for no empathy and sympathy, and I don't look for no, no lead way out of what I did. I'm not looking for that. It's like I'm not sitting here as some victim. Whoa, I got 229 years of life. Whoa is me. That's not what it's about. It's about, I'm hoping some young man hears that I'm up in here with 229 years of life and choose to do something differently with his life before he get caught up like this.
6: So I'm sure that there are young men and women right now that could pull a lot from our conversation because it's a very rich and uncomfortable conversation. What message would you want to leave with someone who's in the position that you were once in? as a trafficker, what would you want to tell them today?
5: Knowing what I know today, I'm not going for it. I am surprised that somebody didn't kill me, and being honest with you, I am surprised that I lived long enough to make it to prison because running into people that didn't like pimps, don't like pimps, people that I sit in circles with at Restorative Justice and hearing their conversations... It's like, I'm surprised I'm not dead. And that can happen. We both know that can happen. I tell young men that want to be traffickers, I would rather you be a janitor at the school as opposed to being a trafficker. One, it carries 15 years to life, and this ain't easy. Two, you're going to be a sex offender for the duration of your life. Three, this ain't no easy joke. All the dudes that care about you, all the people that pretend to care, when you come to prison and you've been here for more than five years, you're going to see how people fade away. What, what really
6: broke my heart listening to you was your three points were about yourself. How your actions And the consequences that you have is about you still. I didn't hear you once mention the impacts of how it affects another person. And I think that that is a beginning
5: of another journey. Thank you for bringing that to my attention.
6: Just know that I hear what you're not saying.
5: What am I not saying?
6: That's for you to answer. I can't answer it for you, but as another human being, I can hear what you are not saying. And maybe we can have another conversation about that next time.
2: Or maybe not. I would hope so. I would hope so. As you can imagine, this difficult conversation is even more far-ranging in its entirety. We encourage you to listen to the whole story on our website, thirdcoastfestival.org. Dirty Water was produced by Erlon Woods, an inmate at San Quentin, and visual artist Nigel Poor, for Ear Hustle from Radiotopia with outside producer Pat Massidi-Miller. It won a 2018 Third Coast Best Documentary Honorable Mention Award. You're listening to Best of the Best, the 2018 Third Coast Festival broadcast. I'm Gwen Maxey. The Third Coast International Audio Festival is an independent arts organization in Chicago. Today, we're listening to the winners of our annual documentary competition, made possible with generous support from the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation. Hear all of this year's winners, along with a trove of other great stories from around the world anytime at thirdcoastfestival.org and on our podcast, Resound. Coming up after the break, a missing girl, a grieving family, and decades of unanswered questions. Stay with us. Welcome back to Best of the Best, from the Third Coast International Audio Festival and PRX. I'm Gwen Maxey. Today, we're listening to the winners of our annual documentary competition. Over the last few years, serialized stories have been making waves in the world of audio. Tidal waves. These series, sometimes years in the making, weave characters, circumstance, and suspense through multiple episodes, taking the listener on an extended ride through time and new discoveries. This year, we honor them with an award category all their own. The 2018 Third Coast Best Serialized Story Award goes to Missing and Murdered, Finding Cleo. Meticulously reported by Connie Walker and her producers, Marnie Luke and Jennifer Fowler, Finding Cleo uncovers layers and layers of tragedy in both one family and simultaneously across an entire nation. We share an excerpt from episode one in which we meet Christine Cameron. Christine is one of five children of the Simagnes family all of whom were taken from their mother by Child Protective Services and adopted by non-Native families in Canada. One of those five children, Cleo, has been missing since the 70s, and Christine and her siblings have been searching to find out what happened to her. I don't blame my mother for what happened in our lives. I blame
8: the Canadian government. That's where I squarely place blame, because... The Canadian government sought to assimilate Native children by saying, you are better raised in a non-Native home and not by your own people. So in denying a whole race of people, a whole generation of kids like me and to the other scoopers, denying us a community, a heritage, a culture, a language, a whole lifestyle that we were made for. We were dumped into something foreign, something unwelcome, something abusive, something segregating, something isolating.
9: When Christine says scoopers, what she's referring to is something called the Sixties Scoop. It's when tens of thousands of Indigenous kids in Canada were taken from their homes by child welfare authorities, and adopted into white families in Canada, the United States, and beyond. In Saskatchewan, where the Simaginous kids were born, the government actually placed the kids they wanted to adopt out in ads, in newspapers, on the radio, and on TV.
4: Have you ever considered adopting a child? Many couples have found their happiness through AIM.
9: It was part of a program called AIM, Adopt Indian and Métis, Essentially, the goal was adopting out the large number of Indigenous kids they had in the child welfare system. Children lost their connection to their families, their language, their culture, and many experienced abuse and trauma. I want to find out more about why the Saskatchewan government created the AIM program that would lead to so many broken lives. Christine believes the government's goal was to assimilate Indigenous kids.
4: It isn't AIM that makes children happy. It's you.
8: So that's why I blame the government. They could have made other choices. They could have sought to, you know, empower the native community by giving them better services, by allowing extended family to care for their children like they do today. But, you know, the government knows best
9: as much as Christine blames the government, she realizes that the only place she can go to for answers about Cleo is back to the same people that took her away in the first place, the Saskatchewan government's social services.
8: Yeah, the post-adoption registry, or what is what is it? What did I call them back then?
9: Adoption Support Center, Saskatchewan. They're not very supportive. But getting the information she wanted wasn't that simple. Christine was told that in order to get answers about Cleo, she needed her biological mother's cooperation.
8: They said, "Okay, well, there's a package you need to fill. All your mom has to do is sign it. So I took this big package, I don't know, it was seven, eight pages. I filled the whole thing out as much as I could. And that's when I brought it to my mother about a month or so after and said, all you need to do is sign, and she refused to sign. She just, she said, I'm not doing that? Yeah, she said, you're going to have to wait till I die.
9: Did you wonder why?
8: Not really, because I think human beings do the things they do for a reason and that it wasn't my choice, it was hers. And all the life she had with no choice, I could at least allow her one choice to make and respect that choice.
9: Lillian Zemaginus died in 2014, for years out of respect for her mother. Christine waited to find answers about Cleo. But after her mother's death, she began calling and writing letters to the Saskatchewan government, but was never able to get any information about her sister. Do you have any consolation that they are trying to follow a process? I I would imagine they would say to protect people involved.
8: I think that the people involved with Cleo... Are the people still asking questions like me and my brothers and my sister who want to know? We've always been asking those questions. But I'm an Indian woman. My sister was an Indian woman. She's been dead for 40 years. And the government has said, basically continues to say, well, we'll get around to it. You know, dismissive, paternalistic, paternalistic, Authoritative attitude towards my inquiries.
9: But today we gave Christine the name and number of the person who works at Social Services in Saskatchewan, who actually has Cleo's file. And when she calls back, Christine says she's not taking no for an answer. Mm-hmm. This is them. Yes, Government of Sask. Oh my
3: gosh.
8: Good afternoon. This is Christine speaking.
3: Hi, Christine. This is Social Services in Saskatchewan.
8: Yeah, hi. Um, I'm calling to obtain information about my deceased sister, Cleopatra Nicotine Samaganus, and we were all adopted in the mid 1970s.
9: I know my Christine tries to explain to the woman from the Saskatchewan government this complicated story of her family's search for Clio. The government of Saskatchewan has had thousands of First Nations and Métis kids in care over the past 40 years. But we have no way of knowing if they've ever encountered a situation like this before.
3: Right now the regulations don't allow us to share like file information between siblings. Okay. But it doesn't, but I'm going to look into it. I'm going to check with our legal and see if there is a way that we can get that information to you. Um, it might, it might, uh, involve a little bit of research on finding out, um, where, where she was adopted. So we'll have to work with them and see if they'll either release that information to us or to you in order to share it.
8: You mean Arkansas or in Saskatchewan? You, You mean
9: Arkansas? Um...
8: If, well, from what I understand, that's where she was adopted, officially adopted. Right, from the place where she was adopted. Okay, let's say things don't go well. What, what's the worst case scenario in regarding my inquiries and uh, pursuit for information for my sister?
3: Worst case scenario?
8: Mm-hmm.
3: Um, I guess that the, uh, that the information wouldn't be able to be shared. Eh. Yeah, it's hard for me to say right now. I'm sorry.
9: And just before the call ended, Christine asked one last question, and I was shocked when I heard the answer.
8: And then my, one of my final questions is, have you, is your office had any experience dealing with Arkansas adoption agencies to facilitate the, the successful transfer of information? With
3: Arkansas? Yeah. Um, I don't recall another instance with Arkansas, no.
8: Okay. <clears> okay.
3: <throat> I just, yeah, I'm not sure that information is correct.
8: Oh, well how do you know yeah. it's correct or not?
3: Yeah. Pardon?
8: How would you know it's correct or not?
3: Because, uh, like I said, we've been, we have some of the information
8: oh. from your file. Well, it would be nice to have some sort of information. You know, as a sibling, you know, it's been 40 years. Yes. <laughs> For 20 years, you've told me nothing. I know. This is my sister. Her body's in the states, you know. Mm -hmm. Do you have a sister? I do. Well, then maybe think about how I feel and really try your best. Because if you know she's not in Arkansas, then find a way to tell me where she is. Okay, that's what I'm going to work on. Please. Okay. So I
3: will call you by tomorrow with the latest to let you know where I'm at. All right. Okay?
8: Okay. All right. Okay, thank you. Okay, thanks for calling. Okay, thank you. Yeah, bye-bye. Bye. So they do know, they're just not telling me. They know where she is. They know where she is.
9: Cleo might not have been adopted into Arkansas. If not there, where did she end up?
8: Okay, she's not in Arkansas, then. I wonder where she is. They know, they know where she is. Well, that's kind of hopeful. Kind of uh, infuriating so she probably has the whole file and all my old letters and all the answers right in front of her.
9: I'm, I'm just shocked that she said that might not be correct.
8: Oh, yeah, I picked up on that right away. How do you know it's not correct? Because uh, in my heart, I believe they know where she is. I've always believed that.
2: In the more than seven hours of Missing and Murdered Finding Cleo... Connie Walker and producers Marnie Luke and Jennifer Fowler of the CBC excavate a labyrinth of information, bit by tiny bit. And in the end, they do find Cleo. To hear the full series, find a link at thirdcoastfestival.org. Missing and Murdered, Finding Cleo won the very first Third Coast Best Serialized Story Award. Third Coast puts a lot of work into our competition, which is why we reserve one award every year to recognize a story we love that might not be acknowledged otherwise, the Director's Choice Award. This year, we gave the award to a piece that is quite sparse but speaks volumes. It's an intimate conversation, in Spanish, between lovers in bed recalling the moment that one told the other he can't leave his wife and family. Here's a short excerpt of Espera, wait, produced by Sarah Cavedo.
5: ¿Qué pasó el domingo? Me El domingo. Mhm. Te ¿Cómo lo habíamos hablar por WhatsApp? we'd eh, teníamos otra another más. And el domingo we oh, the big in Union Square no Yo, Bueno sí Que te encontré ahí Para tomar el tren juntos A la casa, a mi casa Venimos a la casa Sí uh-huh. Estuvimos hasta las Dos de la mañana uh-huh. Dos y algo y Estuvimos en la cama Besando, obviamente ¿Y qué más? Ese fue el día que me, que me Dijiste, ¿no? ¿Qué te di? ¿De todo? Sí. recuerdo cómo me dijiste eso? Pues me estaba sintiendo mal, ¿no? Por haberte dicho eso y, y quería ser sincero. Quería que si, si era posible tener uh, una relación de amistad, porque...
2: Espera, wait, brings us into a couple's private world. In accepting his award, Sayer ended with words from the Salvadoran poet Roque Dalton.
0: Um, I want to end on a poem that feels incredibly important, not just today with the news that we are receiving, um, but also in the time that we're living. It's a, a poem that my mom taught me. It's the first poem that I ever memorized. Like you, I love love, life, the sweet smell of things, the sky-blue landscape of January days, and my blood boils up and I laugh through eyes that have known the buds of tears. I believe the world is beautiful and that poetry, like bread, is for everyone, and that my veins don't end in me, but in the unanimous blood of those who struggle for life, love, little things, landscape, and bread, the poetry of everyone. Thank you.
2: To listen to the entire story with subtitles produced by Radio Atlas, go to thirdcoastfestival.org. Espera, Wait, was produced by Sarah Cavedo, who is an alum of the Third Coast Radio Residency. The residency is a yearly gathering of producers in Chicago dedicated to creating time and space for their audio projects. All in all, we are very proud to say, in 2018, four former Third Coast radio residents won awards, including the Gold Award, which is coming up next. now we've come to the 2018 third coast best documentary gold award winner deemed by our judges to be the very best story of the year this year's winner counted an oakland story paints a portrait of a city struggling to reconcile a dual narrative the town they love and the town that's killing their children this story from snap judgment was a huge ambitious year-long undertaking our judges described it as raw, intense, surprising, and wrestling with its problems in real time. Hosted by Adiza Egan and Daryl Allams, here's an excerpt from Counted, an Oakland story.
4: So, my plan for 2017? Yeah, I'm trying to decrease the humble size. We got to go under 80, man. Amen. Got to. Amen.
3: Clap it up, clap it up, clap
4: it up. I need to
3: hear it. Say stop, stop, killing, killing, killing or our kids. kids. Stop, stop, stop. Killing. Killing. Our our kids. kids. Clap it up, club it up, club it up, clap it up.
4: <laughs> Compared to other cities, Oakland is small. It's like a fifth of the population of Chicago.
10: You can, like, meet anybody in Oakland and be like, what you love about Oakland? Oakland get turned up. Like, they put a smile on your face like we goofy, we fun, we loving. Like, when everything's going good, ain't nobody beefing, ain't nobody funking.
4: You basically got go the rich folks north, living north, in the hills. But you know, then you got us in the flatlands north. in East Oakland. And, and most again, of the murders, party, that's where it happened at, in deep Ooh. East Oakland. Other than that, and for the young people out in East Oakland, the town it starts feeling like smaller and smaller.
10: I would describe my Oakland hurt.
4: Amani is a young person who lives in deep East Oakland. Man, she already lost a lot of her friends, her family, to violence right here. I went to high school with Amani's mom at Castle My
10: name is Amani Foster, and um, I'm from East Oakland, California. I'm 21 years old. I never had to describe myself before. This is weird. Um, I'm black. <laughs> Unapologetically black. Um, I'm goofy, obviously.
4: Four days into the new year, we lost our first child, a young man named Devante Thomas.
11: Devontae was killed just nine blocks from where we're sitting now. He was about the same age as Imani and her brother, they were all close. Amani says he was always looking out for her. And she had just seen Devante at a party.
10: It was like a um like a little block party. And he had gave me some money, he had smoked with me, and he told me, like, you know, be careful, stay safe, you know. And he told me to go home too. He was like, You shouldn't even be out here. But I was grown, but he was still like, go home, you know, like I don't want to see you out here, like, go home. I left too, because I'm like, all right. You know, he wouldn't be telling me this if he didn't know what he was talking about, you know.
4: Don't nobody talk about another murder in these streets. So we still don't know exactly what happened to Devante after he got killed.
11: After Devante was killed, of course Amani was sad. But she was also on edge. She was worried for her brother, Darnell. And then, around midnight on February 11th, Amani got a phone call.
10: My little sister called my phone and she like, Monty, I'm like, what's up? They're saying that Darnell just got shot, like, on 65th. I just instantly told my auntie, like, we got to go to 65th now. So my cousin, she's asking me, like, what's going on, what's going on? I don't want to say, oh, my brother just got shot because I feel like it's going to make everything worse, you know, like, just for him, like, you feel me? I feel like he's going to feel it, like, damn, ain't nobody got no hope for me. Everybody start panicking or whatever, so we pushing it to the sixties, but i'm I'm socking my auntie car windows and hell of shit, like I'm tripping up in there' cause I'm like they're not driving fast enough, and my little sister keeps calling me, I'm ignoring her phone call cause it's like I don't want to hear the wrong thing, and lo and behold, I answered the phone, and she like, "Where you you at'cause they're saying like he's unconscious, so we pull up not even to the scene we pull up like what two blocks like away like <laughs>
3: twenty not conscious, not breathing, Apparent gunshot wounds to the chest. Still not conscious, still not breathing. Still got a big
5: crowd for me, so carrying gunshot wounds to the
10: chest. And I just bounced out the car. I had on some red stilettos, and I must have slipped off them shoes so fast, and I slipped my Crocs on, and I started running down the street in my Crocs. Like, I'm like, I gotta get down there. Like, I gotta get down there to see him. Like, if anything, like, I have to be the one. And I ran out of my Crocs. And when I get to the scene, I see the person who was there with my brother on the ground crying. And then I see like a lot of police officers. And then I see like yellow tape. So I'm like, fuck bro. And I'm just like, I I ran up to the police and I'm like, where's my brother? And they're they're got fucking smirks on their face and laughing at me. I feel like they didn't care. it's an anxiety kind of feeling. Like it's like a feeling that runs through your body to where it's like your nerves, even your nerves are confused, you know? And that's why your blood rushes like that. Cause it's like, I'm calm, but I'm, I'm amped in the same note, like a bottle of soda. I was just talking to myself, like, I can't believe that my brother is really dead. I just broke down on my knees and I was telling God I was sorry and I was telling my brother I was sorry in the same note because it's like I felt like I could have held you you know and let you know like at least if you gonna go you see somebody that you feel comfortable with
7: I delivered him October 30th 1994 never forget the day that we came home that evening day before Halloween and I'm walking down the steps with stitches, you know, from delivering and a, a little baby in this in the carrier. Darnell was short for a very long time. He was so afraid that, um, that he wouldn't get tall and grow. Uh, he would come in and ask, can you measure me? Measure me. This is every day. And I'm like, we would tell him, you can't measure yourself every day. You're going to still be the same height, you know. We worked with him as much as we could. We kept him in church. But the older he got and the company that he had, he, he geared to what was more attractive and appealing, which were the kids who got to do whatever they wanted to.
11: Darnell actually grew up to be pretty tall. His family said he was really into the way he looked. He wanted to be famous. He would make funny videos on Instagram and send memes to all his family members. And in his
7: spare time, he would write. He started writing hooks for, for songs and music. It sounded really good. So he started calling himself Oakland's hook man. Even so, he made plans with Imani to leave Oakland. It started to affect them, the things that were happening around them, especially when they started to lose friends. You know, friends that were shot at parties and killed.
4: Darnell was the fifth homicide of Oakland, California this year.
11: Darnell was shot over 10 times. And the man who police charged with his murder, who witnesses say was responsible for the shooting, was not a stranger. He was really good friends with Darnell. He called him his brother.
10: I never felt safe in Oakland. Like, this is East Oakland. You could never get too comfortable out here because anything can happen at any point in time.
11: After he was killed, Darnell's mom wanted to leave Oakland. She'd only been living in her apartment for a few years. She had kids to take care of. She really wasn't prepared to move. But she just had to leave.
4: Adrian went through all these other towns, but the landlord didn't want to rent to a woman with three kids from Oakland on Section 8. Psh, the thing is, these nearby towns, like Antioch and Pittsburgh, that's where everybody started going when Oakland rent prices started going up. At first it was cool, but then the violence started following. And now landlords, they just don't want rent from nobody from Oakland. So Adrian
11: ended up back in Deep East Oakland,
4: She still doesn't feel safe. She's still paranoid. So she keeps her location of her new apartment a secret.
7: We do peep out the windows a little bit here and there. I'm not that far from where I was living. Um, It's, I know the sirens are going off right now, but like, like generally it's like a lot more quiet here on the street right here where I live. Last night we were in here, the, the police were shooting all up and down here. You know, my son, he came behind me and stood there and he was like, Mom, close the window. I hope our doors are locked. What's going on? He was really scared. You know, that bothers me.
11: For Darnell's birthday... Adrian invited a few close friends and family members to her apartment, and they had a party.
7: Real fast, let's say happy birthday. Happy okay, birthday. We miss you, D. We love you. Um, mommy gonna always love you and mourn you. All, every day of my life. It ain't gonna not none stop. We gonna celebrate you forever, every day. Your big Big 23rd. I know if he was here right now, he'd think this was the biggest thing on earth right uh-huh. now. <laughs> So
8: 23
2: thank
3: you. You ain't nothing but still a baby. Thank you everybody for coming. You know, it's, it's amazing. You you, you when see you them think? born, you raise them, you help raise them, and then, uh, you know. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday. Happy
11: birthday to you. Imani was there. She got t-shirts made with his Instagram name on them. The real stunner. When our friend Muffin
10: died, it was Muffin world, you know. When my best friend Ed died, it's Ed world, Skeet world, you know. Devontae world, you know. Um, I can name so many more, you know. But it's just like that's just something that we do just to like up uplift the spirit, like hey, like you know, like he's still here, like stunner world, like you know,
7: like yeah. I miss you, kid. I love you. I love you, baby.
10: Can we? Can we see?
7: Who? Stunner world. You want
10: to say stunner world? Stunner world! Go.
7: Stunner world! Go. Hey. Stunner Stunner world! Stunner world!
2: Stunner world! world. That was an excerpt of Counted, an Oakland story from Snap Judgment. The full hour-long program immerses us in life and death, sadness, and joy over the course of one year in Oakland, California. We highly recommend that you listen to it in its entirety. Find it at thirdcoastfestival.org. Counted was produced by Adiza Egan, Anna Sussman, Shana Sheeley, and Jonathan Jones, with editor Mark Ristich for Snap Judgment. Here's Adiza accepting the gold award at our ceremony in Chicago.
11: I wanted to do this story because I wanted to tell the stories of the people who lost their lives in Oakland and I wanted to tell a beautiful story and um, I wanted to get it right and so I really am thankful to the people who let us into their homes and who trusted us with the stories of their sons and of their brothers. And to the few black producers in the room, there's something I've been thinking about a lot as I've been working on this story. And um, I just wanna say, I think these stories are necessary and these stories of pain and trauma are necessary, but it's hard. And I just wanna invite you on this quest to like understand how to tell stories of black joy that hit the same note that stories like this do. (laughs) Thank you so much, everyone.
2: Adiza Egan, speaking at the 2018 Third Coast Richard H. Driehaus Foundation Competition Awards. To hear the entire ceremony and all of this year's winning stories, visit thirdcoastfestival.org. I spoke with producers Anna Sussman and Adiza Egan recently, and I asked them about working with the co-host of the story, Daryl Alams.
11: You know, we didn't want to over-narrate and we didn't want to hold the hand of your typical public radio listener. And so we were really conscious of that. And I think having Daryl there as somebody who grew up in deep East Oakland and who could really speak to what was going on from a place of authenticity, it helped us tell the story in a way that felt more real and authentic.
1: Yeah. So one of the complicated things about this piece was it was a a largely non-black editorial staff working on a story uh, largely about black victims and black perpetrators. And so we were out of our depth, right, and, and out of our authority. And even the black editors we have on staff are not from DC East Oakland, right? So we are reporting on a community that we were not from. So over and over again, we would just get it a little wrong. And Daryl would say, you've got that a little wrong. You know, like, let me set you straight, you know, everything on like how folks in that community keep each other accountable, how folks in that community feel about the police, how people in that community feel about school, how they feel about guns, all of these things that we don't know because we are not from there. We are offices in downtown Oakland. It's not in East Oakland.
2: Violence in Oakland, to say nothing of other cities, has been covered a lot in the news. But Content takes a really distinct approach. Can you tell me a little bit about that?
11: Yeah, this was definitely something that I was thinking about a lot when we started the project because one thing that I just that I kept going back to was like, I feel like this story has been done or like, you know, there's tons of stories about homicide, right? So what's going to make this different? And I went to a lot of folks in the beginning and I would say, what do you think the media misses about homicide? These were victims. These were people who had dealt with a lot of victims um, who had provided support and services. And so they said, I feel like they don't capture the ripple effect You know, one person is dead and then the effect that it has on the family, on the people who know the family, retaliation, all of this, you know. And so the thing that I kept going back to as I was reporting this project was just like, how can this story be about the ripple effect of homicide and not just be the same story that people have heard and would potentially make them want to turn off the radio?
1: We realized that everyone's probably going to take away something different from the story. For some people, it's going to be about gun violence. For some people, it's going to be about poverty. For some people, it's going to be about education. For some, people it's going to be about community. And so, we did a lot of interviews immediately following the release of the piece, where people were like, "What's the big takeaway?" And we kept saying, "That's up to you." You know, that that was again like part of our discipline to not overshape the story. You know, to just do that thing where where we told you about the lives that we lost, and you can do what you want with it.
11: Yeah. And another thing that was important to me, too, is that in a city like Oakland where you have people who are moving here and who are interested in the culture, in the appeal, in the art, everything that makes this city really interesting, the people who are the heart of it, who are creating the culture, who gave birth to the culture, are the people who are the victims of homicide. And so whether it's young people, whether it's black people, whether it's brown people, I was hoping that just a little bit of that could come through in the piece,
2: too. Adiza Egan and Anna Sussman, producers of this year's Third Coast Gold Award-winning story Counted, an Oakland story. That brings us to the end of this hour of Best of the Best, the 2018 Third Coast Festival broadcast sharing the best documentaries of the year. I'm Gwen Maxey. The program was produced by Isabel Vasquez and distributed by PRX, the public radio exchange. The executive director of the Third Coast Festival is Johanna Zorn. The artistic director is Maya goldberg safer I'm Gwen Maxei. The Third Coast International Audio Festival is made possible with lead funding from the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. Additional support is provided by the Agadino Foundation, the Menaki Foundation, the National Endowment for the Arts, and the Illinois Arts Council Agency. Special thanks to our many individual contributors from Chicago and around the world. The Third Coast Festival, now an independent arts organization, was originally founded at WBEZ Chicago. Hear all the winning stories from the 2018 competition at thirdcoastfestival.org.